to the Loving Lake Geneva podcast. I'm your host, Karen Stray Rappaport. Each episode, I take an outside-the-wake look at the area's most interesting people, places, and happenings. It's another great day here in Lake Geneva. The lake looks stunning as the ice is melting quickly, so let's jump right in. Today, we have with us Academy Award winner. Yes, you heard that right. <laughs> Dieter Sturm was awarded an Oscar for Scientific and Technical Achievement. Dieter is the owner of Sturm's Special Effects and All Seasons Extreme right here in Lake Geneva. He has provided special effects for over 100 motion pictures and commercials, been on the David Letterman Show several times, was interviewed on 60 Minutes, hosted Bob Hope at the Playboy Resort, just to name a few things. But most importantly for us, he is a Lake Geneva resident for the last 40 years. Welcome, Dieter. Hi, Karen. How are you today? Good. I don't even know where to start with you <laughs> because you have such a fascinating resume. I could probably talk to you for days and still not hear every story that you have to tell. But let's just start with the companies that you own right now. Can you just tell us what those are and what services you offer? What do you do? Sure. Currently, um, I'm considered a special effects coordinator in the motion picture, TV commercial, TV show, even still photography industry. And uh, my wife, Yvonne, and I, we've been running this company for over 30 years. Uh, we create live action special effects in front of cameras for film and for video, even once in a while for live uh, uh, events and corporate uh, happenings. So what we're live action special effects is not anything to do with computers or animation or post-production. What we're doing is we're actually creating effects that are live action, uh, current right in front of the cameras. So this could be anything from weather, like rain, wind, snow, fog. It could be pyrotechnics, which would be fire explosions, maybe bullets hitting things, uh, sparks you know, from electrical lines coming off. Uh, we work with special rigging uh, devices. We work with the stunt people. Um, we build mechanicals, we work with electronics, we work with chemical, a little bit of hodgepodge of everything. And uh, so we're accomplishing, you know, certain types of actions and things that need to be seen in front of the camera. And uh, that's kind of what we've been doing. Uh, we're, we're based here in Lake Geneva. Love living in Lake Geneva. It's my favorite place on the planet. Uh, we've been offered many times to move to Hollywood and other big production cities, but uh we can live here and just travel. So we're we're here in your special effects studio, so to speak. So is this kind of where you house all the equipment, or you test? Do you test some of the effects here, and then when you're hired, you're off? You know, do you take a truck and take your equipment and and do everything on site? I take it. Yeah, this is kind of home base here. Uh, we're in a very uh, uh, undisclosed secret place here in Lake Geneva, which. We had to bring you over with blindfolds here so you wouldn't see <laughs> where we were actually taking You're going to have to kill me now, you know. <laughs> no, no, no. no. Not, well, we could fake it, you know, with, with blood bags and, 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 and squibs and things. Mm -hmm. But this is uh, kind of, yes, the epicenter of our special effects world. Uh, these are our studios, our workshops. Uh, we design things here. Uh, this is where we fabricate things here. We test things here. Um, and then we take these things out into the real world. Uh, a lot of times we may just actually take kind of everything with us uh, in one of two semi-trailer shops that we have, 40-foot, 45-foot semi-trailers that are actually shops in themselves. Uh, we have our tools, we have equipment, we have materials, and a lot of times we'll even invent and fabricate you know, on the fly and on the go on locations. But this is home base here, right here in Lake Geneva. Uh, this is where we keep, you know, a good share of our equipment and, and materials and, and uh, where we work on a daily basis from. And what kind of crew do you take with you? How many people typically, or does it vary? It, it'll vary. Um, uh, Yvonne, uh, my wife and business partner, we've she's kind of the brains of the operation from logistics uh, for financial. Uh, she's an exceptionally good special effects coordinator and foreman. 
we have a number of other local people actually that work with our company on a per project basis. And then when we get into larger movies and and uh, larger film productions and commercials, generally uh, you have to be part of a union to be involved in those size and calipers of projects. So there's a department of what are called studio mechanics, and we draw some of those uh, individuals in also to build our crew. So we've had sometimes 30, 35 people you know, on our crew working. You, there, there was the, what was the movie where you needed like 40 people, 24 hours a day? That, oh, that, that was, was working the, on it. that um, was uh, Robert Redford's the Horse, uh, Whisperer. the Horse Whisperer. Yeah. Yeah. That was, uh, uh, we were up in New York and it was just a handful of us that went up there. There was supposed to be snow. It was supposed to be winter. So we were supposed to just really just kind of manage snow effects up there. And when we got up there, there was no snow. And I remember being brought into the office and they sat me down and said, well, what are you going to do? What are you going to do about this? And so I had to formulate a whole plan and it took a lot of labor and a lot of materials and a lot of machinery uh, to create all these winter wonderlands uh, for them. I think we went through 56 semi-trailers of block ice in like three weeks and we actually chip and shave it through a truck that we designed and built called the snowmaker truck. We're well known in the industry for snow and winter creation. It's kind of funny because there's a sense where people think that's all we do is just snowmaking and and creating winter and falling snow. But we've been pegged with that because we do so much of that work. But we're definitely a full, you know, live action special effects company right from the get go till today even. And it's different. Um, the snow that you create just to kind of sit on the windowsills or cover the ground is that different than the snow falling from the sky? Do you make it differently? Or it's yeah, all- there's there's many different types of uh, techniques and materials that we use, and even equipment and machinery. The premium snow that we make uh, for a lot of the major motion pictures, and I mean we've made snow. I mean, all the way back to planes, trains, and automobiles, to just even recently the Green Book, actually, which, you know, one picture of the year with our snowmaker truck. We actually designed and built this machine in this big truck where we actually take 300-pound blocks of ice, and we actually run it through this machine. It chips it, it shaves it, and then it actually blows it through this hose and then out just like real snow. And uh, we could run about almost 800 pounds of ice a minute through Mm -hmm. this truck and this machinery. And uh, so that's a very specialized piece of equipment. And that's why we get called into like the very high-end motion pictures with this truck and this crew that uh, we put together, you know, through Sturm. uh, Because it's as close to real Mother Nature snow as you could possibly get. So that's the premium snow. Then you have, um, that's usually the snow that's usually around the actors, the snow that's usually interacted with. In other words, it's just not there strictly just as a visual element. It's actually, you know, used, it's melting, it's being pushed off windshields, it's being shoveled, things like that. Then there's different types of materials that are not interactive, but they're there just to basically look like snow. So it's snow blankets. We use a big uh, trailer machine system that we built and designed called snow foam. And we actually blow almost, it looks like almost like a shaving cream Hmm. that's coming out of a uh, a spiral wand. And we spray it down on the ground, like thick, almost thick shaving cream, but it looks like snow. So if you could transition from the real snow from the snowmaker truck and then blend that, you know, with the snow foam into the mid ground and backgrounds, you know, if you believe the foreground, what's going on, you're going to believe everything else in the background too. Um, so there's snow blankets, there's different types of materials like polysorbs and, and uh, there's bio flakes, there's uh, plastic flakes, there's styrofoam flakes. There's a lot of things that we do. Um, 
differently indoors than we do outdoors. Like indoors, we can control things. So we'll maybe use plastic or styrofoam. Outdoors, um, that's where we, you know, got involved with uh, the Academy Awards and, and uh, the invention of bio snow. Because I remember we were working on a movie, this is probably in the late 80s, where we were doing big snowstorms. And all we had back then was basically plastic flake and styrofoam flake. Um, our version of biodegradable flake was potato flakes. And, and there was a lot of issues with that because it was not white. It was kind of yellowish. Um, it, it would degrade quickly if it got wet. A lot of issues with that. So the norm back then was, you know, blow plastic, blow styrofoam everywhere. And I remember coming back to that same location probably three, four years later on a completely another job. And I'm looking in all of shrubs and bushes and it's like, my gosh, look at this. There's all this snow still here. It's it's still here. It's like it didn't go away. I mean, you cleaned up somewhat, but then everybody walks away and it was still left behind. So I said, you know, we, we can't be doing this all the time. This is our environment. So I spent several years actually just, um, that's what we do is we invent, you know. So uh, I said, there's got to be a way to come up with a snowflake type of material that we can use that's truly environmentally safe and friendly, something that's truly biodegradable, something that's non-toxic and, uh, and, and mimic, you know, the flakes with some sort of new technique or material. So going through a lot of uh, trial and error, a lot of discussions with chemists, with a lot of research, I ended up actually saying, I think I found a formulation that's going to work. So I contracted with a corporation down in Indiana. We mixed up these batches of slurry. We then actually turned it into a film. And then we actually color corrected it organically white. And then we actually did a chop and, and twist of the flaking. Uh, and we came up with something called BioSnow. So that was my first invention of a real biodegradable snow. You so, were the first one to do anything yes, like this, right? Correct. Okay. So, and this was back in the early 90s. So then I came out with uh, the BioSnow. And it was good, but the problem, <laughs> there was a problem, you know, was that it started great degrading too quickly. Oh. And I remember when it got rainy or misty outside, all of a sudden the flake would already start to start breaking down. And then all of a sudden it started getting sticky and gluey and people were walking around with big white shoes on <laughs> because it was all stuck to their feet and a few, you know, choice words being said behind my back, you know, <laughs> and, uh, uh, so I said, all right, we got to go back to the drawing board. This is not working out as I planned it. So the next stage was to use the same criteria as everything we were doing, but extend the degradation period of time. So instead of it just kind of melting on contact with water and moisture, that it would be maybe one, two or three months for it to actually biologically break down because of moisture and elements and things. So I went back to the drawing board, formulated up this, came up with the BioSnow 2, uh, put that out there, and that seemed to work. We got some momentum going with that. We had some good sales going with that. And then it all got back to Hollywood. And, and uh, next thing I know, somebody gave us a nomination for the BioSnow. It was kind of an interesting process because they send you a letter in the mail saying, you know, you're being considered for an Academy Award for Scientific Technical Achievement, fill out seven, eight pages worth of questionnaires and send it back. So you send it all back. Then there's this process that takes place. Then all of a sudden, if you make that stage, then they say, okay, you're now considered come out here on this date. And it's kind of crazy. It's like this big, almost like adult science fair you know, that you would go to like at some high school almost. And here's all these different types of people with all these scientific technical inventions, you know, and uh, they're almost set up like a little trade show. And uh, so all the people who vote in the academy go around from booth to booth and talk to you and look at things and such. 
And then there's a conference where then you have five minutes to talk before the board of governors and discuss about what your invention is or whatever your method is or whatever your improvement is, whatever your contribution is. And uh, then from there, they go into these like round table caucuses and they talk and discuss and everything. And then they come back one more time and ask more questions. And then that's it. And then you go home. And then they say, well, we'll let you know in about four, five, six weeks. Did you at that point, I mean, you saw the competition. Did you get any feel for, you know, if you, you had no a shot clue. at it? No, no. Nobody has any clue yeah. at, at that point. So I remember then one day going on to the mailbox and all of a sudden there's a letter and saying, uh, congratulations, uh, you know, you won an Academy Award for Scientific <laughs> Technical Achievement. And it's kind of different than the actors um, where, where you have to go there and then hope that you're winning. All of us in the technical world, we're working. So I remember we were actually on a movie in Minneapolis at the time for Merrimax called Beautiful Girls. It was with Timothy Hutton and Natalie Portman and Uma Thurman. And so we got this letter and, and, I, and it said, you need to be in Hollywood on this weekend, this Saturday. So I remember we had to ask off from work to go to Hollywood that weekend. So then Yvonne and I, we, we packed everything up while we were in Minneapolis, jumped on a plane, flew out there, did the whole deal with, you know, the you gowns the and tuxedos, carpet? the red carpet, really? the limousines, all works. What and was that like? Walking was, the red carpet. It I mean, was very exciting. It was. And, and, uh, did you already know some of the actors just from working on the sets? Or? But it's interesting. This is just the scientific and technical achievement of community. So the the Actors Award is actually then the following weekend. So in my opinion, I think this is kind of like a dress rehearsal run for the next weekend. They're using us as, you know, the guinea pigs in a sense. because. But there's a lot of the, actors there, and you were presented the yeah, award by... Go Jamie ahead. Lee Curtis. That's very cool. Yeah. So, and, and it was funny because we got to work with her a long time ago on a movie called uh, uh, True Lies with Arnold Schwarzenegger. So we made all the snow in the beginning of the movie. It was supposed to be Switzerland, but actually it was Newport, Rhode Island. Oh, that's a fun <laughs> Yeah. So what are some, some actors that are particularly friendly and great to work with? I think one of the, uh, I, I know John Travolta, he was just a riot to work really? with. Super pleasant guy. Um, I remember uh, we were working on a movie called Michael with him. You know, I'm not that kind of angel. And uh, it was with uh, William Hurt and uh, just, just, just a fun movie. We had to go down to Austin, Texas uh, to work on it for a while. And then it flew back up to Chicago and we finished everything in Chicago. I remember uh, Yvonne came down on set the one day and uh, she, she just arrived. I was already there for a couple of weeks and uh, John Travolta just walked right up to her right on the set and said, Hey, you're new here. I'm John. Nice to meet mm -hmm. you. And Aww. it's like, that was cool. Yeah. And he was out there, you know, he talked to everybody. He, he talked to all his fans and everything. Um, just a good guy. I, I'd say another favorite of mine was John Candy. Uh, hmm. He was great. He We did a couple movies with him, uh, Planes, Trains, Automobiles. We did the Uncle Buck with him. My, my favorite story with him is that uh, uh, during lunchtime, um, he would send his assistant out to the gas station all the time. And he'd come back with this huge handful of lottery tickets. And John would actually go around all the dinner tables and, and he'd hand everybody a lottery ticket. And then he would say, okay, everybody, it's $10 million this week. If any one of us wins, we split it and we're off this show. <laughs> so was he always funny, even when he the was. cameras were turned off? Yeah, he was, yeah. he was, a, he was hilarious. But, uh, you know, in the course of, we've done over just over a hundred motion pictures we've worked on, in some ways we've coordinated them others you know we've been in and out of them you get to meet a lot of the actors for the like most just between you and me who is not the most pleasant you know i don't really discuss that because because <laughs> there I'm are trying. there are handfuls of those uh individuals that are out there yeah. that need to be 
uh, nameless and and uh, they know who they are. Oh yes, <laughs> yeah, and and so do all the people that work in the production industry too. Yeah. yeah. So when you're out on a set, I mean, could it be? a day could it be three months i mean what's the shortest and longest amount of yeah time? it's true a, a day you know is is a quick in and out um and there's times we've spent three four months at a time you know on, on a movie uh sometimes uh we're brought in just as specialists you know and working uh with other coordinators uh sometimes we're it we're the department we're the you know decision makers we decide and invent and produce everything and, and put together all the equipment. We put together the crew, we, you know, design, we, we install, we actually execute, you know, the, the events that take place in front of the motion picture with the cameras, with the actors, with the stunt people. So yeah, it's, and, and it could be, you know, day or night. I mean, this is a 24 hour, you know, business. So yeah. Uh, and you do commercials as well. We do a lot of TV commercials also. Uh, those are shorter term types of projects. Those are usually one to maybe five or six days. Um, this last year, we just did all the, uh, for the second year in a row, we did all the uh, Chevy commercials for Christmas and New Year's. Uh -huh. And uh, those are all national spots. So, you know. And where were those filmed? Uh, we were actually uh, just north of Detroit. Mm. So we were working up in... Uh, a lot of different uh, uh, suburbs of that area and region up there. Of course, that's where, you know, their corporate offices are up there too. So people, I mean, you're so well known in the industry now, obviously. So as far as who hires you, it all just kind of comes through, through producers or, I mean, who, who picks up the phone and calls you to hire you? It, it is a small industry. It's yeah. not like something you're, you're, putting ads in Craigslist right. or anything for <laughs> exactly. it, it, it. It's after, but it, it is difficult in the beginning to actually get started. Now, these days, I think it's a fantastic day and age to be in uh, the film and video industry business. When I was young, I mean, all we had was film. Video was very primitive in a way. Uh, it was all analog in those days where every time you were trying to duplicate things, you were always losing quality and, and generations and things. Uh, now the digital world has uh, arrived. Uh, it has taken over virtually everything. And the exciting part to me is the fact that the costs have dropped so radically for equipment and for post-production Literally anybody can actually produce a TV commercial or a motion picture for, I mean, five ten thousand dollars these days if they really wanted to. I mean, a prime example just over Christmas was uh, a named director who actually did a complete commercial uh, with a snowball fight uh, that was all shot on an iPhone, and it was a spectacular commercial shot from a phone. Wow. You know, so for young people these days or any age, I, I would, I guess, you know, this is just prime opportunities. Now, the digital age kind of was a big question mark during this transition, too, when we've been doing it all live action. And now all of a sudden computers are coming into play and software is coming into play. And everybody's all of a sudden saying, well, you guys are going to be out of work. You're out of business. And uh, because it's all going to be done in the computers now. You know, even the actors will be, you know, gone. It'll be all computer, you know, actors and such. Well, it went through a bit of a transition a little bit there, but then we found a very great coexistence developing between the live action world and the digital post-production world. Um, and, and we found very clearly we still both need each other. It's not going away. So, for instance, um, if we're flying somebody uh, in the air, in the old days, we would have to go with almost like piano wire, thin cables, and with lighting and trickery, try to hide the wires that way so that you don't see this person hanging in the air with a wire from, you know, their harnesses upwards. Uh, these days now, we can go with a, just a thick cable, and, and they just do wire removal with the computer, and it tracks every single 
pixel wherever that cable is and just removes it with a clone over from left and right and it's gone now you say wow it's quite amazing but for for on, on my end what that adds is a whole another layer of safety you see so in a sense they're kind of doing me a favor is that i've increased the safety factor margin dramatically by able to put a heavy cable as opposed to this thin wire that could possibly snap mm -hmm. so safety is is like so number one in our book and we have to look at every single type of element that's taking place when we're doing these special effects so that there are no problems so that nothing you know misfires nothing falls over nothing you know comes apart you say that as I'm staring at this picture in your office here of a car blowing up, <laughs> thinking, yeah, yeah I would imagine safety well, would be um, and, a concern there. And, and even with that car there, we, we actually have cables that are attached to the doors and into the framework of it so that when the doors actually come exploding out and we actually use cannons to blow the doors sideways, left and right, is they will only go so far and then kind of drop and fall down so we're even controlling where hoods are going where trunks and car doors are going uh -huh. um there's a lot of design work actually into vehicle explosions or building explosions or whatever we may be doing i mean we've blown things up from cars boats motorcycles mine shafts buildings cocaine villages i mean we've blown up a lot of stuff through the years. <laughs> and speaking of, on a smaller scale, your visits, you were on the David Letterman show several, four times, I yes, believe. Yes, four times. So tell us what that was like, and, and you were blowing things up there too, right? <laughs> yeah. We are blowing up food and appliances with Dave. How about that? That's what it I was. I remember he used to have those science. Yeah, that was kind of an interesting story because um, Dave was actually coming to Chicago uh, from New York, and uh, he was going to do his show for a week in Chicago. I'm like, wow, you know, that would be great to do something with the David Letterman show, plus we can, you know, use some work. So I started pitching some ideas uh, to the show, saying, I'm a special effects coordinator, you know, we're right outside Chicago here, uh, I'd like to throw this idea at you and throw this idea at you. Like, for instance, the snowmaker truck would be outside and and Dave has this big, you know, eight foot tall mound of snow next to him. And he's got these little snow cones, uh, cups and these and flavors. And it's Dave's snow cone stand, you know, and 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 uh, giving everybody snow cones, something, you know, crazy like that. Or you open the door up the side door of the theater and it's the Windy City, so things are actually flying past the door, you know, and, and those types of, you know, little scenarios. And uh, so they liked the ideas, but then they ran the ideas past uh, the powers to be, and they go, well, you know what? That in itself is kind of a conflict with our writers mm -hmm. because our writers come up with this stuff. So we're not really taking these types of outside skits and and things even though they do involve special effects you know we're the ones that come up with that so i said okay that's fine so then they called back and they said but you know you're kind of an interesting fellow and you've got some pretty creative ideas so why don't you come up with some ideas that you could do something with dave and special effects and we'll put you on the show with them and i'm like wow even I, better I, yeah, well <laughs> that's not the way i was going with this whole thing you know so that was kind of a surprise so after that, I got a phone call back from uh, New York and they said, well, come up with some ideas and things that you can actually do, you know, with Dave and, and come up with a list of things. And uh, we will then, you know, review it with our, you know, producers and see if it fits into the show whatsoever. So I did that for a number of weeks and I kept submitting things and then we came up with a number of different types of ideas. And then they came back and they said, well, you know what? Chicago is not going to happen because Chicago is so busy with a lot of different types of uh, celebrities and different types of guests that they want to have while they're actually on location is that we'll bring it in New York 
instead. And I'm thinking, yeah, uh, that's not going to go anywhere. And sure enough, a couple of weeks after they left Chicago, I get a phone call. Hey, Dieter, we want you to come to New York, uh, come up with a few more ideas. So back and forth we went, back and forth we went with ideas. And it was kind of running out of ideas because you can only do so many things live on a stage in, in X amount of minutes, you know, to really, you know, show special effects and have some fun. So I remember I kind of was running out of ideas and I was having breakfast down at Daddy Maxwell's down in Williams Bay, uh, where I always have breakfast. And, uh, and, and I was kind of telling my frustrations out to the guys I have breakfast with all the time. And, and I said, well, what do they want me to do? Just, you know, you know, explode a bratwurst or something. And I'm from Wisconsin. Everybody started laughing. And I said, oh, maybe Let's we're talking about exploding, <laughs> exploding food. So we ended up um, literally hours later, uh, I proposed, uh, well, why don't we maybe do some exploding food type of uh, uh, special effects with Dave? And literally 15 minutes later, I get a call back saying, we love this idea. Can you do some tests? Can you show us what you're talking about? So we did a few tests of just exploding uh, some pizza and I think uh, some hot dogs or something. And they said, yep, we love it. You know, so they scheduled it up. Um, uh, we ended up also then expanding it into doing some small appliances. So we did some boom boxes and we did uh, uh, some radios and they were GE products because it was NBC for whatever reason. But uh, the, the I think the, the most well-known things that we exploded with Dave on the show was exploding uh, Bratfurst because of course we're from Wisconsin, <laughs> uh, the exploding cottage cheese. And, um, and then we did, uh, then I got a call all of a sudden out of the blue, like a week before Thanksgiving, come in the day after Thanksgiving, we want to do exploding leftovers. So we did exploding <laughs> cranberries. Uh, we did exploding uh, mashed potatoes and gravy. I, it was, it was a mess, pumpkin pie. It was just, so that was a lot of fun. We did uh, four shows over the course of two years. And he's as nice as he seems. Yeah. Dave Dave's a, yeah. He's a fun guy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so you, I mean, you're, like I said, I could talk to you for days. You have such a huge resume, but locally speaking, you did some PR work over at the Playboy club or. Right. Uh, originally I, I, I came from Milwaukee and uh, after high school, I had a scholarship to go to Milwaukee School of Engineering. Uh, I had this some sort of need or yearn in myself to somehow work in TV or radio. I don't know why, but that's I was always kind of a in, kid inventor. I always liked in you know electronics and building and designing things. Like for instance, my mother would say, "Where's the ironing board?" And I already had it in the garage, and I built an ice boat out of it. You know what I mean? <laughs> You know, that that's kind of how my household was. Things <laughs> would would be built from anything that I could find around, you know, the house. Uh, so I fortunately found a way to get into a brand new radio station in Milwaukee right at the tail end of high school and uh, started working part time there as uh, the gorilla mascot. It was the WZUU radio, the Super Zoo. And uh, uh then I started Milwaukee School of Engineering, and I was going there for a number of months. And then after uh, working part-time at the radio station, they said, hey, we've got an opening for a full-time maintenance engineer, which was a janitor. That's what that was. And, maintenance uh, engineer, I love Yeah, that. exactly. <laughs> but it was a foot in the door. And I said, okay, I'm going to try this. I'm going to take this big leap of faith. I'm going to leave college. And I'm going to actually work full-time at a radio station and see where I can go. Well, through the course of about, I think, seven, eight years, I actually built myself up from uh, the janitor to actually working with the chief engineer in the engineering department. Then I uh, learned the recording studio side of it. Uh, then I was doing promotions and uh, PR events for them. Uh, then I got thrown into doing even late-night, midnight to 5 a.m. graveyard shifts on the air as, as my name was TJ, which stood for the janitor. And, uh, and then I worked with, uh, there was a huge uh, DJ, Larry, the legend that everybody knew in Milwaukee and uh, David Haynes. So we did a lot of promotions, special events. We did uh, 
parades and car shows and movie premieres. And I used to come up with really wild and crazy promotions uh, to the point where actually Billboard magazine uh, put me on the front cover uh, with my wild and zany promotions for radio. So, so one of them uh, tied into a, um, a nightclub called the Mad Hatter, and uh, we were doing a promotion with Playboy uh, at the time in Milwaukee. And that's where I met some people from the Playboy organization that was working from the resort here in Lake Geneva. Long story short, I got a call one day saying, hey, I'm the PR director in Lake Geneva. I'm leaving my position, uh, moving out west. Uh, maybe you're interested in applying, you know, get a head start in, in getting a resume to these guys. I jumped on that. Uh, a number of interviews took place. Uh, here in Lake Geneva, and then I had to go to the corporate down in Chicago, and then uh, uh, they offered me the job in Lake Geneva, providing uh, I, I cut my shoulder-length hair. <laughs> and, oh, and, really? Yeah, yeah, and 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 clean myself up a little bit from the world of rock and roll radio uh, into a little bit more of a corporate position. So I did that. Uh, moved to Lake Geneva uh, back in um, that had to be around 1980, I believe and uh, started uh, working there for a number of years. Uh, you hosted Bob Hope, among other people. We huh? did a lot of uh, a lot different of types of concerts and, and, mm -hmm. and celebrities uh, at Playboy. Uh, I worked very heavily with um, the media in tying the Lake Geneva Playboy Resort, you know, with the medias at the time. Uh, so as a corporate public relations director, that was my position and job is to, you know, create excitement, exposure to the publics and to the media about the property. And the property is still, even to this day, a phenomenal property out there. But within a couple of years after that, um, Playboy was actually one of uh, two resort properties, the Lake Geneva property. And then there was one in Great Gorge, New Jersey. And that was the only resort properties that Playboy owned. And they were somewhat funded by gambling uh, and, and casinos in the UK from a different division of the Playboy, you know, enterprise and empire. Uh, they ran into issues over there. We were actually, the last few years I was there, actually turning a profit for the very first time, mm. where normally the gambling casinos were actually funding the properties to keep them above and floating. So, so we were in a good financial position there, but when they ran into some legal issues and licenses pulled over there and things like that. Then all of a sudden those monies dried up for over here. They sold both the properties. We knew that Americana had came in and bought the property. Uh, basically all the management was replaced. And uh, now I was looking for a place uh, to work. I almost went back into radio. In fact, actually it was basically a, a pause and a phone call that changed my entire life from either being here in Lake Geneva or actually moving to Cleveland and working for Malwright Broadcasting. They had asked me to come back as the corporate public relations director and promotions director for the entire broadcast chain, which included the radio station up in Milwaukee. At the same time, some people that I knew here in Lake Geneva said, there's a company local here called TSR. Uh, they're a game and publishing uh, company and they have this game called Dungeons and Dragons, and they could use some, you know, public relations help and assistance. You know, would you meet with them? And I said, sure. And I went through a number of different types of uh, interviews and discussions with a number of the management team from TSR. And uh, next thing, all of a sudden, I know I'm accepting a job right here in Lake Geneva at TSR. And that's an entire story in itself, too, because... TSR uh, turned out to be this amazing game and, and publishing and toy company that stemmed from a role-playing game that Gary Gygax and, and uh, uh, Frank Menser and a number of other local people here developed and designed into actually this brand new genre called role-playing games uh, for basically the toy industry. And, and they took basically this game that was being 
produced down in the house next door to Pizza Hut. And nice. they were actually handing UPS boxes up through the basement window, you know, to out there to now all of a sudden this company that I joined that had maybe about 50 employees at the time. And within a matter of maybe a couple of years, we were almost at 400 employees and we were actually growing at over a thousand percent a year. We're actually on Inc. Magazine's top 10 fastest growing private companies in America. So it was an incredible, you know, entrepreneurial success story, TSR. Uh, They had, you know, controversy. They had uh, sales. They were in Toy Fair in New York. They were in the hobby industries of America, trade shows. I mean, they Is were, that what did you go on sixty minutes about that controversy? There? Yeah, that's where actually uh, Gary Gygax and I uh, were called into sixty minutes. Uh, he and I sat there with Ed Bradley, uh, discussing about uh, quote unquote the controversies built around uh, this game Dungeons and Dragons, and uh, as we know the media and and how special interest groups act these days, even more so these days. Back then. It wasn't as prevalent, but they knew which buttons to push and which companies to attack. And uh, we were just a number, you know, of other companies and products that were basically targets for different types of um, money-making schemes, political leverage schemes. Um, it got very in-depth. It had nothing to do with the games and the products. It was it was quite. Uh, we I ended up calling it the fundamental network actually out there. So as I had a lot of fires to I you know attend to, uh, I also had these massive amounts of proactive work uh, that we were working on doing all the time too. And then how did that come to an end? And you're now yeah. So transitioning company. yeah. So transitioning from the world of corporate public relations and promotions to special effects. Well, all along even from radio days to Playboy days to TSR days. I always was inventing. I was always designing. I was always building. One of my strongest suits is and talent is creativity and inventing. So I've always been doing that behind the scenes. So even when I was working these full-time corporate jobs, I would periodically be taking on little small jobs here and there uh, helping. It was mostly in the live special events arena. And then I had one fella in Milwaukee say, hey, can you come up with a groundbreaking ceremony that's not your typical stick the gold shovel in the ground and toss some dirt? So I said, well, why don't we explode a mound of dirt? We could do it that way. We could do a big you know, gunpowder trail all the way out. Uh, the mayor and everybody can have hard hats on with you know, flares and, and they could all light the powder train and watch it go zooming out kind of like the Roadrunner and Coyote type of, you know, mm-hmm. cartoons. And and then kaboom, the whole mound explodes and, hey, we did the groundbreaking. Well, that made the front page uh, of the business section the next morning, the Milwaukee Journal. And this was actually um, for a big pick and save grocery store up in Oak Creek, Wisconsin. And uh, so it was a big success. And uh Maybe a couple months later, the same fellow that hired me for that said, hey, I'm doing a TV commercial uh, for a client called Emergency TV Repair. And can you explode a TV set and a VCR for the commercial? So, of course, I said, sure, I could do that. Going, I don't know how to do this, but I always got to figure it out. Of course, you always (laughs) say yes. And uh, so I worked at putting that together, basically Let's do it on a weekend or an evening because I'm working full time. And uh, so we did it. And and I just got bit by the bug as far as film and video. I'm like, oh, my gosh, this is incredible. Uh, this is where I need to be. This is where I could take all my talents and, and, and inventions and creativity. And, and I love this film. I love this video stuff that we're doing. So... I started knocking on doors everywhere. I just printed up business cards. Hey, I'm a special effects person. Hire me. And, and you know, with no, you know, experience whatsoever. And then a fellow that was working in radio knew me, said, hey, I'm going to do these syndicated TV commercials 
for these album rock radio stations across the country. So I need you to explode uh, radios and boom boxes and, and stereos. And, and we're going to do it in all these crazy ways. We've got machine guns. We've got guys with them strapped on belly butting each other. We've got Father Guido Sarducci with a steamroller. I've got Hulk Hogan smashing stereos over people's heads. I've got uh, uh, John Cameron Swayze uh, putting it a boombox in a machine that has to crush it, saying it takes a knocking and keeps on rocking. And, and, and so I said, I'm up, let's do it. So we did, it was called the destroyer series. And, uh, that ended up winning. So not did only, all those things that you just said. Oh, sure. <laughs> and, 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 uh, we filmed them and, and they put the commercials together. They syndicated to all these different stations across the country. Uh, we won local Addy awards and then we actually won national Addy awards. And, uh, so that worked out good. And then I got a call out of the blue saying, hey, we just fired a special effects guy in this movie. Can you just come down and just finish up for us? Uh, it's a movie called Lucas with uh, Corey oh, yeah. Haim. And uh, we need you to just to do all these bugs hitting the windshield of a car so it veers off the road. And we need this uh, uh, sewer cover cap kind of twisting back and forth and lifting up down at this big concert site. But we can't dig down deep in the ground because we're hitting water. So you have to do it all mechanically. So I said, sure. So I jumped on this project. I said, I can only kind of do evenings or weekends. They said, good, we'll work around the schedules. I never walked on a movie set in my life. I had no mentors, no nobody to handhold me or tell me what to do. I just walked on this thing absolutely cold. Uh, just said, I'm going to do what I I'm hired to do, and then I'll figure out everything else that's surrounding me and so I could learn and understand how this whole business works. So I did that, and then it's like, yeah, this worked out good. And But, it, you know, I, I made all my novice, stupid mistakes, you know, at first. And, uh, but, but no one got hurt. <laughs> nobody got hurt. Uh, everything was successful. And then I think uh, the tipping point was somebody talked to somebody, to somebody, and they said, hey, we're doing this movie. Do you want to work on the whole movie? It's going to be about three months. It's called Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. And I said, wow, okay. So if this was a big decision point in my life where I'm actually leaving a full career and a guaranteed weekly paycheck to now go completely freelance, work on this movie for three months, and then try to figure out how to make a living from there. And you did it. Yeah. It's pretty amazing, you know, because you've reinvented yourself a bunch of times in different career paths and been successful at all of them. But do you think you're going to stick with this for a while now? What What, what do you have coming up well, we, in the future? We, we have a number of different uh, directions. We, we, we're, we're trying to focus. I'm, I'm one of these guys that loves to just get into everything and this project, that project, build this, build that. But from a business standpoint, maybe the last five, 10 years, I've learned to try to focus myself a little bit better because when you're in business on your own, there's nobody sitting there telling you what to do. You have to kind of figure it out yourself and you have to see what's been working, see what's not been working, seeing, you know, your time management, seeing, you know, what's profitable, what's not, um, all these types of real world business things that you have to make decisions on. So snow and winter uh, became one of our specialties and we're known very well for that. And there was always something that was in my mind many years ago, 15 years, at least 20 years ago, maybe of they've got all these quote unquote synthetic slopes for skiing and snowboarding over in the UK and Europe. And because I researched snow and winter all the time, I got exposed to these and I said, why don't we have those here in the United States? I just didn't understand. So Yvonne and I, we packed up maybe I don't know, 12, 15 years ago. We went over to Europe and to the Netherlands and to Belgium and to England. And we went to see all these synthetic ski slopes and, and, and they were just junk. They were, how anybody even skied on these things was beyond me. In fact, actually, I remember one place we went to, literally it was a big, gigantic wood structured wedge and they screwed down 30,000 scrub brushes. Oh. 
facing upwards. Seems like your skis would get ruined. <laughs> yeah, and, and they sprayed this kind of like green soap on it. And that was what they were skiing on. And it's like, that's gross. That's, a, you know, nobody in the United States would deal with that. So through the internet and through YouTube and my research, I started watching this company called Britain Engineering Developments out of the UK. And they were engineers that were saying, let's start with a clean, fresh piece of paper and actually invent from ground up a synthetic slope specific to skis and snowboards because everything else was kind of a byproduct, which was from the carpet industry or the brush industry and, and was never designed specifically for snow sports. It was just kind of used, you know, and, and uh, so I watched these guys for several years and all of a sudden they invented this stuff called Snowflex. And uh, I said, this is going to change the entire winter sports, snow sports industry. My gosh, that you can actually ski and snowboard basically anywhere, anytime outdoors without real snow. But it has the properties of snow for the boards and skis to interact with. So after I watched them kind of grow and actually put together some slopes over in the UK, I said, we have to go over to UK. We have to meet these guys. I want to bring this stuff to the United States. So we went over there. We had meetings with them. I'm a skier. I skied on it. It was like, this is bizarre. I'm skiing, but there's no snow here. It's But it works like snow. And uh, so finally I said, could we bring this to America? Could we be your reps, your sales agents? And uh, through about a course of a year, they finally gave us permission to do that. And uh, now we've renewed, I don't know, three, four times with them. And we've been with Snowflex for at least 10 years here. And uh, so we're the exclusive reps for Burton Engineering. So we have a division of Sturm that's actually through our company division called All Season Extreme that we're actually trying to build these year-round ski, snowboard, and even tubing slopes. And I believe that the future is going to be urban centers that are actually built in cities and towns where you don't have to go all the way up to the mountains, you know, to ski. You can just say, hey, Karen, after work, you want to just uh, ride for an hour or two? Yeah, great. We just drive across town and here's an awesome slope that, you know, has everything from beginners and bunny hills to full fun, you know, riding slopes to big air jumps to complete rail jam parks and they're all inside outdoors so so it can interact with real snow correct okay. so real snow can actually fall on this and these could actually be built in locations that never even see snow so mm -hmm. now we're taking a eight billion dollar year industry that's based on geographic locations and snow being present and now we're actually being able to take it into another eight nine months a year and even to locations that never even get snow. So it's just an incredible opportunity. And these are sports. So this is, you know, skiing and snowboarding is a traditional sport. So you're not trying to reinvent anything. Mm -hmm. What we're doing is we have this opportunity to take this existing industry and for the very first time, break out of a plateau that it's kind of stuck in and actually increase and grow it. That's incredible because, I mean, I ski too. And every time we book a ski vacation, you know, you start watching, is there going to be enough snow? Is there going to be enough snow? And, you know, it ruins a trip if there's not or people won't go or if it's a bad winter. I know these places suffer financially. So, And it's great opportunity for, you know, teaching mm -hmm. and introducing the sport to people, you know, in in climates and in you know, environments that are comfortable. I mean, I remember when I first started skiing, I was outside on some bunny hill. I think I was probably either at Playboy or I was at uh, Slinger. And uh, I'm freezing to death on this little bunny hill, kind of like, what am I doing here? What is this? <laughs> you know, and, and now you could actually comfortably go to a Snowflex uh, slope and, and uh, uh, you know, enjoy the warmth, enjoy, you know, being comfortable, you know, and learning. So uh, this is the future. So that's another spinoff of what we're doing from Sturm is uh, trying to get the word out and, and get uh, entrepreneurs, get uh, ski resorts, get uh, new business developers, 
even parks and recreations, you know, interested, even universities. The first one we built actually at Liberty University, uh, the Snowflex Park there has been running over 10 years now, 12 months a year outdoors with full thousand foot long runs and, and everything you could imagine. We actually just built the biggest tubing park, outdoor tubing park in Branson, Missouri at the Wolf Mountain several years ago. And uh, the ROIs are absolutely crazy. I mean, you know, I think in less than two years, that whole entire thing was already paid for. Wow. So, and that's something, you know, tubing is an extension of snow sports, but everybody could participate from little kids to grandma and grandpa. Mm Tubing is a lot of fun. Last question. Don't you do a snow display in the summer here in Lake Geneva sometimes? I I thought I saw a video of you covering a property with snow here. Well, sometimes we we, we have a very specialized group here in Lake Geneva. It's just a handful of us. Usually it actually happens at Christmas time. Oh, it does. Okay. When there's no snow. Got it. And um, so we actually will go from anywhere from about four or five different families. And uh, these are usually families that have kids that may not see another Christmas again, Hmm. or people who have had some very tragic things happen through their year. And, uh, and we come and we give them a white Christmas, Hmm. you know, for Christmas Eve. And uh, it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's, you can't even put words to it, how much uh, fun it is for us, but also, you know, how moving it is too. And it's just something we give back to the community. That's incredible. So I ask um, this of every guest. My last question is, what is your favorite thing about Lake Geneva and living here? The people. Easy the people. answer, right? It is. <laughs> the people. Because the people, it, it's, Lake Geneva is a very, very special town. Uh Everybody says, yeah, it's a resort town. And if you go anywhere actually around the world and the planet, if you say Lake Geneva, Wisconsin, people have heard of it. People know about it. It's kind of the playground for Chicago, you know, in the spring and summertime and early fall. You know, that's when everything gets really busy here. But then, you know, off season, you know, the locals, everybody knows everybody. Uh, and And what I really enjoy is not only just the personalities and the hospitality of the people here but i love the different types of people that live here in lake geneva i mean you have people that are billionaires that live around the lake that are out in some rusty old fishing boat you know and and you've got people that are or some dive bar <laughs> yeah exactly and 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 these are not millionaires billionaires and and uh, and they're just like you and I. They put their pants on the same way, you know, every day, and and uh, um, and are as friendly as can be because yeah. we're the local community. We're all friends and, and acquaintances around here. That's why I um, say you can, you know, you go out to these events or these fun dive bars or restaurants, and you see people of every age mm-hmm. and of every background. And I, I think you'd be hard pressed to actually point out who those billionaires are in the crowd. Yeah, There's and, no and, pretension there. It's, it's, and it's not even money. It's it's yeah. even just, you know, uh, people who have made it tremendously huge, you know, in, in the music industry. I mean, there's examples of that. There's people behind the scenes in the music industry that are, are huge names, but nobody really knows that they're here, mm-hmm. but they are. Uh, there's There are actors here in Lake Geneva area that uh, uh, there's people that actually own television networks here. I know two completely different television network owners here that are commonplace in, in the world of, you know, broadcasting. Uh, you've got artists here. You've got so many different types of creative people. You have very unique businesses and startup businesses. Um, it, it's just such a kind of a potpourri of different talents and, and personalities. And, and you just don't find that in places. Uh, you've got farmers, you've got uh, people involved in the, you know, culinary arts. I mean, it just, you've got people in, in wine and spirits and beer 
it just goes on and on all the different categories of people here. So that's what makes that that's my number one, you know, answer is, is the people. That's what Everybody's makes Lake Geneva. Everybody's nice and in a good mood here in Lake Geneva. It is. It is. <laughs> Whether you've lived here for a month or you're vacationing here or lived here for 40 years, everybody is passionate about Absolutely. Here, We've so. had many times uh, opportunities to move to Hollywood and different, uh, you know, big film locations. Nope. You know, I, I love Lake Geneva. I'll travel if I have to, but that, you know, that's the price of paying for living in Lake Geneva. Well, we're lucky to have you here. And well, thank, thank you. you so very much for talking with me today. Always a pleasure. And as always, thanks to the listeners for letting me share my love of Lake Geneva, the natural beauty, the crystal clear waters, the sunshine and the sunsets, but most of all, the people. I'm Karen Stray Rappaport. Join me next time as another guest takes their place in the sun. Bye for now. Zap.